regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Next episode, Datacast, and today I am on the live with uh, Jan Jawaski. Uh, he has six years of experience at the global consultancy and as a data scientist. Jan currently works in the realm of self-driving cars as a project lead data science for Camac GmbH, the innovation vehicle of Volkswagen AG. Uh, he is also passionate about advancing the automotive industry through machine learning and sharing his knowledge in the fields of business and data science. He is a top contributor to uh, the Taurus Data Science publication on Medium. He's also a DeepLearning.ai ambassador, supporting the team around uh, Deep Learning luminary Andrew Angie. So, Jen, um, proud to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, James. I'm happy to be here. All right. So, uh, to start out our conversation, I want to talk about your um, educational background. So, I saw that you got a bachelor degree in uh, business administration and economics from um, Goshen College, which is a liberal college in Indiana. So can you uh, talk about your undergrad experience? For sure. Thank you for asking. Um, my undergrad experience was uh, it was great. It was a lot of fun, but it was also very different. And I think this is something that you will see through, uh, throughout my resume for my entire career. So Goshen College is a Mennonite college, which is basically a Baptist Christian college. And I myself, I come from Berlin, uh, from a secular background. So going to Goshen College was definitely uh, a big step for me, uh, also in the in the culture uh, that I had to adapt to. I was able to get a basketball scholarship, so I played lots of basketball when I was younger. So I got a basketball scholarship to play there, and I decided to study business because I thought business would be the easiest skill that I could apply, both in Europe and in the U.S. I should have uh, thought another step further. I think computer science would have been the best skill probably and the best uh, degree to major in. They also have a pretty strong um, computer science degree at Goshen. Um, but at the time, I didn't really know much about computer science. And I was also a little bit too intimidated because I thought it would be too complicated to learn coding. But yeah. That's about my undergrad experience. I finished in, in three years, and after that, I started uh, my first job in consulting. Yeah, so let's talk more about that. So after finishing college, you uh, came back to Berlin, and you worked as a strategy and enterprise intelligence consultant at EY, which is one of the big four consultancies. So uh, how was your time at EY? Oh, it was also good. It is, um, I learned many, many new things. Uh, I can count count out a few ones but it was uh, also a very different experience from the one that i had in berlin before then in goshen college so i had to adapt to a new environment again so being able to um, overcome some of the first challenges and learn 
uh, new things. I think that has helped me there a lot. What I did, I was in the enterprise intelligence. Why, why did I decide to uh, work in management consulting? I had this really great internship that I had at Goshen College called Institutional Research, where we would use data from surveys to analyze how happy, how uh, confident the students were with their performance at Goshen College, how happy they were with the college in general. And then based off this data, this massive survey data that has been going back for decades, we would recommend to the dean of the school what actions they should take to improve, let's say, student retention or student engagement or whatever else. So that's during this internship with uh, Professor Dr. Scott Barge, where it was the first time where I decided how powerful, uh, how I saw how powerful it is to work with data and make decisions based off data. And then when I went to EY, they had this very cool field called enterprise intelligence, where they would use mostly accounting data, data from business background to make informed managerial decisions. So that was the area I wanted to work in. And I did a few projects there, but in consulting, it's always the, the case that, especially in Big Four Consulting, you have to, you get assigned to certain projects. So especially at the beginning, it's not that easy to really pick the field that you want to work in because you have to work on certain projects. And if there's no project in exactly the area that you want to work in, you get reassigned to a few other projects. So I did that, especially learned how to be professional how to um, think with a business mindset and overall I wouldn't miss my experience there. During your two years time at EY, I know that you also uh, uh, decided to pursue a part-time uh, master's degree in computer science uh, at the Chair University of Applied Science. Uh, so can you talk more about uh, that decision? I always wanted to have an impact in what I was doing and that was around 2014. That was when I for the first time saw how how basically the digital economy, how everything digital is going to create lots of value in the future. And here in Germany, we have many Mittelständler, so many companies that are very good at producing, manufacturing their goods, and who are also on the brink of becoming more digitalized. So I think I thought the biggest values, uh, the biggest impact that I could have would be through uh, learning how to code and learning how to actually build things myself so I could actually have an impact. So I found this really great program at the University of uh, Trier, uh, Trier University of Applied Sciences. And they offered people who did not have a computer science degree the opportunity to catch up on some computer science basics and then to make up in a three-year master's degree um, in part-time to make up everything else for their master's degree. So I started in 2015, 2014, I think, and finished uh, three years later in 2017, 2018. So what were some of the most useful classes that you took for your master degree? Yeah, if you recount, I told you that even at Goshen College, I considered um, taking doing computer science as my degree, but I was too afraid that I would not be able to learn how to code, right? Back then, my image was that coders and programmers were only those nerdy kids who would sit in front of the t uh, screens all day and would just code and... Um, they would have such a big advantage to me that I could never catch up to them. So one of the most useful graduate course, why I'm saying this, is the most useful graduate course I think I had was advanced programming actually at the Hochschule of uh, Trier. Because after I finished this class, it was advanced programming, it was, it was a really tough one, but I actually aced it, got I think an A-. minus. And after this course, I, told, I thought to myself, oh, this is nice. I think I actually 
can learn how to code. And so I think that was the most important one, finishing the advanced programming one. And then obviously there were some distributed systems ones where you learn how the internet works, which was just mind blowing to me. And any database setup is also a very solid computer science education. So I can definitely recommend those classes. Brilliant. So it seems like you uh, got a quite a comprehensive exposure to a variety of aspects of computer science. Also, as part of your master program, I, I saw that you did your master thesis with a company called uh, Scout24. And in fact, you even wrote a blog post offering uh, a, a, a glimpse of what it's like to be a, a data scientist at Scout24. So for the people who are not familiar with the company, can you uh, share a brief overview of, about them? and uh, what you enjoyed most about working there. Absolutely. So Scout24 is a European marketplace leader. It's a digital company in the area of um, basically real estate and car selling and car buying. So in the US, you would have Zillow and I don't know, cars.com, where you would go and buy cars. In Germany and in Europe, you have one of the Scout24 brands like Immobilien Scout or Autoscout as a market leader in many countries. So um, it used to be a confidentials uh, business where you where sellers would basically post ads, hey, I have this Volkswagen I want to sell, and then buyers would go there and would be able to, to match the supply and demand. Um, the company has now turned into a value-added company, so they have, offer lots of services from relocation services to um, knowing the true value of the car that you're going to buy to actually making the real estate market in Germany transparent to just offer the buyers and sellers more services to uh, whatever they're choosing to do. They have a pretty strong data science department now. They started to build out, I think, five or 10 years ago. And the data science department supports different um, customer groups. They have certain horizontals and verticals. Verticals focus on customers and the horizontals provide services to the verticals. And um, so one vertical, for instance, would focus on just um, customers who want to build a new house or other customers who want to rent a house. Then a data scientist would go into these verticals and would try to deliver data-driven products together with those verticals to make the lives easier for the customers. And what I loved most about the company was that it was so open, right? You could easily approach everybody in the company. I even had coffee with the CTO once. Nobody had any attitude about that. And for me being an intern, intern or working student, just reaching out to everybody. And everybody was open to innovation. They even had a program, which I really loved, was called the Data Lab, where you would have a data scientist, a data analyst, and a data engineer sit in a room together for a month. And then all of the people, all people from the company were encouraged to pitch their innovative ideas. And then a steering committee would basically decide which idea was the most important one. And then the data engineer, scientists, and analysts would, would try to come up with a proof of concept in one month. And afterwards, we would either have a learning or that it doesn't work, or we would know that it worked and you would go on and deliver a product out of it. So just the innovative spirit and the openness of the people was absolutely brilliant there. And so if I'm correct, why um, working on machine learning for your thesis, you also start taking some online classes and, and you uh, uh, most notably is, is the deep learning specialization with deeplearning.ai and you even wrote a, a couple of blog posts talking about um, you know, some of the technical concepts that you learn from, from taking that specialization. 
and this resonates pretty well with me because you know I, I also like have tried a variety of, of uh, online classes in the past couple of years and uh, have have some sort of um, certain um, positive experience from 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 doing that. So uh, for you, uh, how is this specialization uh, different from um, other online certification related to deep learning? Uh, so when I took my my master's course in computer science, I didn't have any machine learning courses per se, right? I had some stats classes in my bachelor's, I had some uh, advanced programming classes in my master's, but I never had any classes focused on machine learning. So I wanted to become a data scientist. I knew that was what I wanted to do, but um, at least I wanted, I knew that I wanted to write my master thesis in this area, but I didn't really have enough background knowledge. And then those online courses came along and they were just absolutely brilliant, right? That's why I'm probably the biggest fan in the world of everything that Andrew and G is doing. And that what, that's why I preach the Andrew Bible wherever I go. But these online courses have just given me such a good perspective and have, have allowed me to learn about machine learning, what I have not been able to learn before. That was absolutely brilliant. And then I could actually apply everything that I learned there in my master thesis. So um, that's all. that was also one of the reasons why I decided to become a mentor or an ambassador because I, mm -hmm. I knew how great it is and how I wanted to give back to the community. And in terms of comparison to other online courses, I took a few courses on Udemy, which were also good because they're quite applied, right? They usually... The ones that I took at least, they tell you, oh, if you want to read more about this, you can go here and go there, but let's actually code through this Jupyter Notebook example, which is good, but if you actually really want to understand the underlying statistical concepts, which is a lot harder than just running through Jupyter Notebook, mm -hmm. then um, I think those courses really stand out from Andrew and G. I see. So it's important to understand the, uh, the first principles, right? like the, uh, the, some of the more theoretical stuff and statistical knowledge. I remember when I was taking like his like very well-known Coursera, like we have to code in MATLAB. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter the tools, but more, more, more importantly is the, the concept. And that seems like that's what uh, you, you really enjoy f uh, from it as well, correct? Absolutely. And maybe you can give me your insights about how you like the other courses if you have taken some other online courses. But um, I also talked to Kian Katan Farouche, and if you've taken a deep learning specialization, you will have seen his face uh, in a few of those videos. But he said that when he's hiring junior data scientists, he's especially looking for solid statistical knowledge and solid programming knowledge because this is the concepts that take the longest to actually learn and to perfect, right? Like anything else that you need to do to be a data scientist, like like knowing some data engineering, knowing some business parts, those parts are easier to grasp once you have the fundamental set. And I think the Andrew and G courses really st stand out on teaching you in an easy and comprehensive manner the really fundamentals of machine learning and of data science. I see. Um, and you, you mentioned that you uh, become a mentor and ambassador with uh, DeepLearning.ai and uh, more, spe more specifically you uh, help support them via different tasks, you know, including giving feedback on the educational content, uh, discussing uh, new product ideas and even writing um, forum entries. So can you talk more about uh, such involvement? Yeah, for sure. So those are actually two separate tasks. I was at first, I was the Coursera mentor, 
this is something that you can apply for if you finish uh, one of the Coursera courses online. And it's you volunteer your work to actually uh, answer forum questions by some of the learners and um, yeah, basically summarize any of the topics that um, the people have questions about. So I did that for two reasons. One, I wanted to go back to the community, um, absolutely. And the second one, if you are forced to explain a concept more thoroughly, uh, you have to understand it also. And actually being a mentor was a great addition to just taking the online course because it helped me, it forced me to go back into the content and really understand, okay, why is and this position the bounding box like this? Why is the anchor here only one and why are there not two anchors in this place? And really being forced by, by great questions from the audience to explain everything, that helped a lot. And I can really recommend that. And the third layer to that is, I decided that I wanted to summarize my learnings and that's why I started this blog post series. Again, it ha I think it was an, a valuable resource for other, re for other learners that are also taking the deep learning specialization. And also for me, it was good because I was able to summarize the concepts in a concise manner. And I actually still go back to some of the blog posts whenever I need to reread some stuff. So um, that was definitely helpful. And then coming from those blog posts, uh, I was actually contacted by Andrea and she's in the marketing team of Deep Learning AI and she told me, hey, I saw your blog posts, Can you, would you like to become a Deep Learning.ai ambassador? And I said, sure, absolutely. And that's when I stopped being a mentor for Coursera and started being a Deep Learning AI ambassador. So as an ambassador, you basically like uh, evangelize the, the, the cost? Yeah, I, I do many things and the best thing is that I really have a direct contact to the team and I can give them feedback. We're all on the same Slack channel mm -hmm. and so what few things they, they would... Um, so actually in October we're doing the very first Pi and AI meetup in Berlin where there will be a live web stream with Andrew and G and a Q&A afterwards and I would for instance help set up those things mm -hmm. or I would give them feedback to their courses. I gave them recently feedback after a few uh, papers were published about course five and course four. Um, I gave them feedback about additional content that could be developed to the online courses. And yeah, I also enjoy very much being involved with the AI fund guys. Um, Andrew and G has a huge ecosystem, has one arm of, uh, one arm of his uh, fund is basically um, developing new AI startups. So I'm lucky to talk through some AI startups uh, with some of the AI fund investment uh, members. And that's all just a lot of fun. And, you know, everything that's just related to artificial intelligence and machine learning that gets my heart bumping. So I'm happy to pitch in and share my ideas. So you've been working at Kamal GmbH, which is a Berlin-based uh, innovation vehicle of Volkswagen um, AG for almost um, two years now. For the audience who are not familiar with Kamalk, can you you know uh, share a brief overview about the company uh, as well as uh, a couple of interesting projects that you've been involved with? For sure. So Carmack GmbH is the software innovation company of Volkswagen Group. Volkswagen, they, they are one of the largest manufacturers of cars in the world. I think last year it was how many, like 11 or 12 million cars were um, produced and sold. And um, yeah, we are basically the software innovation vehicle. So we have many skills. Carmack is about nine, 800 people large. We intend to grow 
we have some pretty high, uh, pretty large growth targets that we have to hit. And we basically support Volkswagen with anything of software development, soft car related software development. So we would develop some, we have uh, user experience, expertise, expertise in handling big data, expertise in handling the hardware, the sensors, and actually bringing software into serious production because um, this is a safety critical software that you have to produce for a car that drives itself or even for a car that is being driven and knowing the processes and knowing the standards, how to um, actually create those the software for these cars. That's where our expertise lies. And what I what I do there, I'm basically I'm leading the data and artificial intelligence team. So we have lots of projects in the area of data infrastructure and a few projects that work in the realm of self-driving cars. So basically providing modules that fit in together with advanced driver assistance systems. So uh, let's dig a bit deeper into that. So related to your work at Kamal um, in a blog post called uh, the state of self-driving cars for everybody. You uh, outlined the six main infrastructure problem of self-driving cars for the masses. Uh, would you mind just quickly going over over this problem and uh, ideate Absolutely. some potential solutions? Yeah, maybe you can help me with the solutions. <laughs> I could really use some help there. So let's start with the first one, which is really the one I have to deal with every day. So one is the sheer amount of data generation of data that is generated by autonomous cars or basically by, by cars itself. Cars have many sensors and the sensors that actually produce the largest amount of data are cameras and the cameras they can produce up to four um, I think gigabytes per second which stacks up to um, almost a terabyte if you let them run for 24 hours. So uh, no, actually 10 terabytes for one day. And if you imagine if you just have a thousand cars driving around for a day, you already have one petabyte of data. If you were to record all the data and store all the data, and um, that is just like this amount of data is just really hard to handle and really hard to make it easy for data scientists afterwards to create value from it. So we need a lot of data, absolutely, because data is what's at the heart of data-driven development, what's at the heart of machine learning. Without data, you know, there is no machine learning, no artificial intelligence, but it's really hard to figure out what data to save and what data to drop. Do you have any ideas how to solve that issue already? Oh, in, in like safety? Yeah, for instance. That's an interesting question. I'm not too involved with sort of that. Okay, I didn't want to put you on the spot yeah. here, but I mean, I can just tell you about how competitors do it. So, for instance, Tesla, um, what Andre Carpati has said in one of his keynotes is they don't really store all the data, but they are able to trigger the fleet of the Tesla cars that drive around. And if they say, okay, our neural network fails at detecting bikes that are strapped to cars, then they can query the... Um, the fleet and say, hey, whenever you have a bike and a car in one image frame, just send it to us and send it to the send it to Tesla brain. And then we have the data and we have added data to improve our neural network. Mm -hmm. So um, having those triggers could be one of the solutions, but you would already have to have a pretty advanced data infrastructure to do that. So I see. just handling the large amounts of data is pretty hard. Then transporting the data is pretty tough. In China, um, the clear standard is that they will have 5G communications, so all cars can pretty easily upload most of the data and download most of the data. 
and um, 5G is the core technology there to make actually self-driving cars a reality. For us here in Germany and Europe, 5G is, is not really an option. We don't really know when we'll actually have it. And um, then even if you don't, if you just drive into your garage and then you have Wi-Fi and you have a really high-speed internet cable to upload the data, even then it takes, I think, 25 if you have a 60 megabyte per second. I don't want to miss up the math here, but I think if you have a 60 megabytes per second um, cable and you want to upload 10 terabytes, like all the data that you collected in a day, it would take you 25 hours. So it would take you more than a day to upload the data that you've collected in a day. And uh, yeah, that's an issue. <laughs> the other one I can talk about is um, sensors. So one, one uh, thing that the auto industry is actually pretty set on is that you need LiDAR sensors. These are basically the spinning things that you see on top of self-driving cars that emit laser beams. And uh, these laser beams are really good to measure the distance between objects. And this is really important to avoid obstacles, drive around them, um, but they are very expensive. So one Velodyte lenser, a LiDAR sensor costs about $100,000 just for research purposes. And obviously, if you just put even just one sensor on top of a car, that would immediately increase the price of the car by at least 100000 So we're not there yet. I think mass producing those sensors will solve the issue. But nevertheless, LiDAR sensors are still really expensive. Tesla doesn't use LiDAR sensors at all. They say uh, LiDAR is a crutch. But um, for now, I think most people believe that we need LiDAR and it's really expensive. Another one is, is training data. So it's the same like storing the data. You also have to collect training data. That is, is pretty tough. I think there's a European initiative going on that would like to require car manufacturers to actually share the data they have collected. So then that getting training data from your networks is, would not be a problem anymore. Another one is corner case detection. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's quite good. And that's the problem with self-driving cars that are to a certain degree um, easy to get them to 90-95% accuracy and do well in 90-95% of the cases. I just made up those numbers to illustrate the point. But um, figuring out the last 1% or 0.1%, the last corner cases, for instance, when a child actually runs into a street, um, how to avoid that, that is really hard. And the very hardest and the last point that's also really exciting is the verification of neural networks and of machine learning systems. The process currently breaks for the machine learning industry, uh, for the car industry, because uh, bringing general software into a car is, the process is there, but going from a deterministic software to a statistical software, where you don't always know why, hap- why what happened, what has happened, mm-hmm. um, that is really hard. But we're seeing great progress there. A lot of um, interpretation tools like Lime or ML Interpret from Microsoft Research. So I'm hoping we will be closer to solving this issue next year. I see. Thanks. Thanks for sharing the, those uh, important ideas and um, current state of self-driving cars. Yeah, I mean, I'm, this is quite new to me. Um, the only thing that I know about a car self-driving car, I just uh, I was watching a couple of lectures from one of the MIT classes. Uh, even nice. even familiar with um, with Lex Friedman, yeah, right? Lex Friedman, correct. Yeah, he's. Yeah. Uh, you got that whole YouTube series on self-driving car, which is pretty interesting. Kind of talking about it's great, yeah. yeah, the different different uh, the file levels in, in your blog post you mentioned about. Yeah, your last point on 
machine learning explainability is, is also quite important. That's definitely a, an increasing trend of like research these days, you know. Um, I actually like this past summer I was working with a startup that doing sort of like explainability but like for for credit underwriting. So it's a yeah. slightly different use case but um, they were also using a bunch of um, novel R&D work on how you can, you know, explain the interaction between features and you know uh, what are you know the weight and biases inside a, a neural network design. So uh, uh, that potentially can can be a good um, transfer model for like self-driving car, maybe. Sounds super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the points that you talk about is also like the the challenges of like in Germany, there's not enough uh, bandwidth, right? In terms of uh, for sure. Yeah, I know. Like recently, there's been there's been some. I I recently just watched a lecture. From one of the Stanford classes, but they were talking about how they can uh, do efficient uh, deep learning inference for mobile device. So, uh-huh. so essentially, they try to figure out how to make the neural network train in a more efficient way, like different quantization method workflow in, in order to like limit the, the suspect essentially. So those those model can run on a mobile device. They they how did work well in a um, resource constraint. Uh, use case, so I think that might be also a potential solution for the data transformation problem that you you mentioned earlier. Absolutely, and two more points to add to that. One more point: what's really interesting is federated learning, right? How you can share data between basically IoT devices. Cars could be regarded as IoT devices if you want, and how to use the resources on those different devices efficiently, and how to share data in a private and privacy a compliant manner. That's also a really interesting topic. And in cars, you can never forget that the hardware you have in cars is not comparable to even some of that hardware that you have in smartphones, um, let alone any GPUs. Um, If you want to mass produce a car, sensors are often really expensive and you don't really have the luxury of relying on really strong, having really strong GPUs in your car to do the, the, the inference. So the hardware constraints and how to solve that is absolutely applicable to cars, like you said. So yeah, let's let's talk more about uh, you know, now. Let's let's move on to talk more about a couple of your uh, media articles that I found to be interesting. In a post called "Top Five Business Related Books Every Data Scientist Should Read," you gave a curated list of five uh, business related books that uh, help you become a, become a better data scientist. So. Can you quickly go over these books and uh, provide a short one-sentence takeaway from each of them? Absolutely. So one of my favorite books is Lean Startup, Eric Ries' classic. It's about the build, measure, and learn loop. And that's basically how machine learning works, how data science works, right? You want to build something in the quickest, easiest way as possible. You want to measure the results, and then you want to learn and figure out which direction you want to go next. Mm-hmm. Um, next book I really enjoyed was Zero to One from Peter Thiel he has some pretty comfort- controversial um, theses in there that basically go against my economics uh, background but I found the way he thinks about business really really interesting and the biggest takeaway would be that he argues that you have to focus on creating a monopoly uh, mm-hmm. and if you 
Well, first zero from zero to one is basically about creating something that's brand new, something that hasn't been there before, similar to, let's say, a blue ocean strategy. Mm -hmm. But then once you've created something that is so brand new, a very new product, you should focus on creating a monopoly. And what I have concluded from that for data scientists is that very often for AI startups, the data could be the monopoly, not necessarily the product that you have, because let's say a recommendation engine, you can find thousands of blog posts how to create a recommendation engine. But if you have really accurate user data that enables you to build, let's say, the best recommendation engine that could be out there, that could be a monopoly. Okay. Next uh, would be Thinking Fast and Slow. There's also a book that teaches you how to think about your own thinking and be wary of, of certain pits that, pitfalls that just occur in your thinking. What I've also found in my master thesis is that I want I wanted to be a, a specific thesis. I wanted it to be true and started to look for reasons why my hypothesis would be true. But yeah, that was that was just one of the pitfalls that he met that um, Daniel Kahneman mentions. Next book would be Black Swan by Nicolas Talib. And then Nassim Talib, sorry. And it basically just states that we as humans are terrible at predicting the future. And for us, the data scientists, there was also a really interesting thread on Twitter by Francois Cholet that it's quite useless to use LSTMs or any recurrent neural networks to predict stock prices because stock prices are not always cyclical. And if they are cyclical, everybody is going to there's no advantage of you knowing that they're cyclical. Um, what we want to predict is really outliers in the future, events that would really move a stock price market up or down. And you can't really guess that by just looking at the past performance of, let's say, this stock or comparable stocks. For that really to be really good. And the last book I can recommend is Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Rommelt. And his main takeaway is that you should really focus your efforts on a specific goal. And for data science, I can just take the same uh, advice and I want to focus the limited time that I have, the limited resources that we have as a team to focus on the best way forward. And if the, if the best way forward changes, we should go a different direction. But really knowing how to focus is, uh, is really important. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's very helpful. Yeah, I, I read most of them except for the last one. So uh, it's probably not in my to-read list soon. Nice. Yeah. How what how did you like the books? What did you think about them? Yeah, uh, a couple couple of years ago, like I was super into like that whole you know lean startup and product management. So yeah, I read like zero to one and and a revised book a few years back. So that was really helpful just because, uh, like you said, you know, give a, a framework of um, that framework of minimum viable product can can be applied, you know, towards many different. Uh, many different domain, right? Like to just to to foster an innovation culture, uh, and then yeah. um, thinking fast and slow. You know that's a classic one. You know, help me get actually that book introduced me to the whole field of behavioral psychology, right? So right. since then I've been reading a bunch of different books on 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 behavioral psychology, behavioral economics, um, because you know all those books got uh, referred to to Kahneman's work. Uh, so that was really interesting. And yeah, uh, Nassim Taleb, I, I read his book, that one, and then, you know, Fool by Randomness, and I think Skin in the Game is one of the most, his most recent ones. So that was pretty good because he's a contrarian thinker, right? Like, obviously, he argued for 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 the fallacy, human uh, irrationality of, of, like, believing in, totally. in randomness. So I think that's really cool because it's, it um, makes a question, you know, the validity of, like, 
uh, statistical uh, argument, right? Like you have to really look at your numbers, right? And you cannot just like because you know like this uh, this experiment had a certain correct p-value that that's mean we're going to be correct, right? So that's that was also eye-opening for me. Yeah, that's really good. One more point I'd like to add about the skin in the day in the skin in the game. The top that book basically argues that people perform the best when, to a certain degree. Not their life, but let's say their performance or their remuneration, their reward depends on their actions, right? So he says he would never trust a broker, a stockbroker that doesn't get a share of the of the benefit that he would give you or she would give you, right? Mm -hmm. And there was an interesting study by UC Berkeley, I think, a few months ago that was looking at common traits between entrepreneurs. And interestingly enough, the study found that most successful entrepreneurs come actually from really well-off backgrounds, from, let's say, rather wealthy families. So um, let's say they had all this safety net that even if they would fail with their startups, they would still have, let's say, their wealthy parents or their wealthy um, brothers and sisters who would be able to support them. And this, to a certain degree, contradicts the skin-in-the-game theory, don't you think? Yeah, so I, I'm not too familiar with the Berkeley study um, yet, so I cannot make any uh, judgment opinion, there. you know. <laughs> no, but but there was but because you would generally think that if you if this was really your one shot as an entrepreneur, then you would just give everything, and that these people who would just have this one shot and who would really have no safety net, they would become the most successful ones. So that would be according to the skin in the game, how I understand it, how that theory would fall out. But um, yeah. maybe it's not always and in all cases true. But yeah, yeah. Just, just my two cents. I see. Well, I, I personally, I feel like entrepreneurs are much more risk averse, to be honest, because they, like back to that point about applying, applying lead methodology, you have to view, measure, and learn constantly. Okay. So they're actually more receptive to you know they try to minimize the risk, right? So, so when when the, the theory of skin in the game not necessarily means that you know they, they put all of their resources on the line. Maybe just like a certain enough stake, enough uh, equity to really like push for push for the uh, for the bottom line. So yeah, I um, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. yeah, you are more risk averse because if you do it right, you learn more quickly and know when to stop sooner. Yeah, good point. In another post called Top 5 Mistakes of Greenhorn Data Scientists, you share the five pitfalls that young data scientists can stumble upon in their first job. Can you quickly go over these mistakes? Absolutely. So this post is basically written together with Sebastian Foucault. He used to be a professor in academia for 20 years in, in, astrophys in astrophysics. And after my experience at basically leading the very first teams and very first junior data scientists, so the most um, common mistake that I saw was that data scientists coming into the job expecting life to be like Hegel, right? Mm -hmm. Most most data scientists would love to have a well-prepared data set already where you have the, the labels and then you have a good explanation about the data set and you have a test set and then you just tune the model. And that in reality is really the smallest part of the work that you do, right? Like most of the data sets, not most, but many data sets that we have, we don't really know what each data point actually tells us. We don't really know what the ground truth is. We don't really know what a good test set would be. So actually coming up with um, creating a data set yourselves, finding a data set somewhere that is not perfectly prepared, 
I think that helps you much more than I, Kegel is absolutely valid. It has, it has its place, but I just want to emphasize for junior data scientists that the real life is really far away from from most things that you see on Kegel. Yeah, and the next point would be that most not but the ones that I saw would love to focus on neural networks. And neural networks are brilliant in the in the area of computer vision and natural language processing. In these areas, I wouldn't really go with any other model. But if you work, for instance, in a digital business, you will find that very often a logistical regression model will do just as fine as a neural network or a random forest. So knowing different models and knowing that there are other models besides neural networks that are maybe easier to interpret, much easier to interpret, much easier to explain and easier to use, that's also a strength that you could have, right? And um, the third one that I saw was that you always have to focus on the value, right? You don't want to go in and say, what can I do with artificial intelligence? What can I do with machine learning? But you always have to ask yourself, basically as an employee or as, as a person in general, what value can I add? And very often you can add a lot of value with artificial intelligence, but in some cases you don't really need artificial intelligence and just a rule-based service would do just as fine. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, you have the pretty common one, uh, mixing up causa causation or correlation, right? There's this pretty interesting statistic or website that shows and that the age of Miss America, whenever it's increasing, that also the murder by steamers or ironing actually also goes up. So it looks like, so you could actually conclude from the statistic that if you would start to decrease the age of Miss America, the murders by hot vapors or steamers or irons would go down. But this is obviously nonsense. So understanding that there can be many cases when something looks like a causation, that it's not a it's, uh, that is not a causation, but just a correlation, and that the causation is maybe caused by a, a third variable that you haven't looked at, that is a really important fr um, framework for thinking about certain topics. And then the last one is also that you have to start out every project with setting a key metric first, because that's the one goal that you try to optimize if you have a good key metric then you know how to optimize and improve and come to the res desired results more quickly if you just start out and you um, just get some level of accuracy but you don't even know if accuracy is the right measure or maybe f1 score precision or recall would be better then um, you're wasting quite a lot of time so yeah these are my five top mistakes that sebastian foucault and me actually came up with Really cool, yeah. Um, what do you What do you think about them? Do you can you can yeah. you relate to any of those points, or sure, do you see them sure. as well? Yeah, um, I think one, uh, just looking at those those points that you just mentioned, I think uh, yeah, I mean they they all valid. Personally, for me, the point that I'm really trying to, or like or like something that I really getting want to learn more about is is point number four, right? Like causation and correlation. Yeah. I recently read a book um, called The Book of Why by uh, Judy Upper, he's like an UCLA professor, but he like, he literally like he introduced, you know, the whole Bayesian programming uh, revolution. So that book argued for the necessity of understanding causation. Personally, I just want to learn more about like sort of mm, more statistical framework and uh, mm -hmm. having some, some knowledge of like, you know, uh, uh, those methods gonna allow the data scientists to have a more 
mental models to, when you apply the problem because not everything is like a simple, you know, supervised learning problem, right? Like having yeah. certain uh, knowledge of like statistical causation, you know, and, and Bayesian programming will allow you to deal with situation in, for example, you mentioned stock market, that's definitely uh, can be a Bayesian problem or like any sort of reinforcement learning stuff, uh, especially for staggering can be a Bayesian problem. So um, yeah, I, that's, that's mostly what I'm focused on at the moment. Yeah. No, very good. Having a solid statistical understanding, it will it will help you a lot. It will help you in life and in your job for sure. In, a, in a, another postcode, power of goal setting in data science, you emphasize the importance of using uh, Google's goal setting method, OKR, which stands mm -hmm. for Objects and Key Results, to set up a data science project uh, for success. Um, yeah, and um, can you uh, provide an example on how to apply this goal setting framework in um, the automotive industry? Yeah, absolutely. So OKRs were first developed by Andy Groff. He was the CEO of Intel. And the reasons why he chose to use OKRs is because he wanted to have a measurable and transparent way of telling a story. So objectives and key results are actually a way of telling where the company is going and why it's going a certain way. And you can use the same framework very well for steering other projects that you have. And if you believe in distributed agile teams, that teams that make decisions for themselves, you can use it also for data science teams. So what I like to do for every data science project, I like to give out the vision and the key metrics where we want to go. So that would kind of be a mix of an objective and a key result. And then I would have the team discuss three three ways or three milestones three keystones that they would have to achieve on actually getting there right so for one of the projects that we did uh, one key result would be that we would find for a specific problem a data set with at least ten thousand images that would suit our specific use case well and then the next use case then the next key result would be that we need to there's always a sufficient key metric and a uh, and uh, a key metric and a sufficient key metric. So the key metric is the one that you have to achieve at least, let's say 95% accuracy. And then a sufficient or sufficient key metric would be let's keep the runtime below five seconds per image or let's keep it, let's make an inference uh, in real time. Mm -hmm. And then you basically break down those requirements as your key results. And then you let the team figure out themselves how they want to achieve those key results. And all you do is if you lead the team, you check back in with them however often you want, once a month, once a week, and see if they're actually um, going to reach the key results or not. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it helps you tell the story why the team is working on a specific uh, topic. It sets the vision and the goal. And then it also shows how they want to get there and the actual implementation, like how the key results actually achieve, that gives the team enough creative freedom to figure out how to do that. I see. So making sure that you can measure progress and... Uh, exactly. Uh, and then at every point of time, you can tell, okay, we're actually falling behind our key result. We, we, did, we did not achieve 90... We are, it doesn't look like we're going to achieve 95% achieve accuracy. What can we do? Should we maybe focus more of our resources on the specific key result? I see, yeah. And in, in that blog post, you mentioned John Deere, right? Like, yeah. The investor. Yeah, like... Um, um, I know he got a book called Measure What Measure Matters. Measure What Matters, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I haven't read it, but it's on my to read list. So that might be something interesting for anyone who wants to uh, learn more about this um, standardized way of uh, setting up a project for, for success. Right. I can highly recommend it. I think it's probably in my top three favorite, um, yeah, basically popular science books. Perfect. So in a very, uh, like in a, in a wonderful postcode introducing the AI Project Canvas, you open source the AI Project Canvas, which is which answer the most pressing question about outcome and resources needed for an AI project. So um, I can resonate a lot with, with this because, you know, I, I, I read that book by um, Oster Water on the Business Model Canvas right. a few years ago. So that was really nice to, to have that sort of framework that you can apply for any sort of project, right? And go back to the, the, the part that we just talked about, about sending key and checking all that. So can you explain the Canvas in more detail for our listeners? Absolutely. So the background behind the AI Project Canvas is that I wanted to have like a one-page overview of a project, of an AI project, and see if it would probably work out. And if it would work out, how we're going to make it work. It's, it's, it comes from the business model canvas, so it's nice that people already know how to think in these canvas structures. And there are a few other machine learning canvases out there, but I found some of them not detailed enough and another one too detailed, so um, we came up with this AI project canvas. It focuses in the middle on value proposition, right? That's what I said earlier. You always have to ask yourself, what value are you going to add? And the value proposition is the central part. Then for every AI project, you have to answer the questions about the data that is available. Do you have ground truth data? Do you have to acquire the data? Um, is the data already cleaned? Um, or, yeah, what's the status of the data? You would have to define what are the skills to actually process the data and to come up with the project and what's the key metric. Like I also said before, key metric is one of the most important points when you start a data science project that you really know what you're optimizing for. So that's basically the left side, that's the foundation. If you have those things, you can actually get started on a project. Then in the middle, you have the value proposition telling you why you're doing this. And on the right side, you would have the customer. You would clearly define who's the customer and why would the customer benefit from this. You would define the integration part, which is also a point that I find too, that I find many data scientists and many data science teams forget about about how like this model or the service is actually going to be integrated into a working system. And then you have stakeholders, people that you have to make sure that are supporting the project. And on the very bottom, you have the financial part. And I know it's, it's pretty annoying and pretty tough for engineers and data scientists to think about costs and revenue, but this is really important because this is what the management, the people who are going to approve of the project, and even also yourself that you can check against like how high are the costs going to be? How high is the revenue going to be? Is this likely going to be a pay? Is this likely going to pay off or not? So if you can answer those four basic blocks around the data, the value proposition, the customer, and the financials, then you're on a on a good way to actually making this project work. Perfect. So I make sure to uh, to link that in, into the show notes so people can get a chance to take a look at the canvas and use them for the uh, for their business use case. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. So the last point, it actually trans- transitioned very well for my next question. So uh, in a blog post called Business Basics for Data Scientists, you argue that data scientists can use machine learning to do one of these two things, 
First is either to increase the revenue by creating new products or improving existing ones, or second is just to decrease costs by automating a couple of tasks. So what might be some obstacle that uh, straight the data scientists away from doing that in practice? Yeah, totally. So this, the most important key point that I want to make with this question, right? Like what keeps data scientists for either creating or improving products or decreasing costs is domain knowledge. I think it's really hard for a data scientist that comes into a company to really understand how do the processes work or how is the value actually generated or what do the users actually want from this company and how can we serve the user better with data-driven products. So I find domain knowledge to be incredibly undervalued in the data science community. And that's also, I think, one of the reasons why it's really hard to do data science consulting. It's really hard for a company, for a consultant to come into your company and look around like where could the data be pulled from? How do I get access to different silos of data and understanding what the data actually means and then generating insights from this data, how to create new products or how to decrease costs is really hard and it generally takes a lot of time. Uh, one more funny story I can tell is that I had a friend who was working on an RPA project, robotic process automation, which would actually automate um, processes to decrease costs. And he interviewed a lot of employees about their daily work, would write, line up this process diagram and see how he could use AI to actually make the lives easier for the employees. But he found out that most employees didn't tell him all the work they were doing or would tell him even, um, even wrong things about their job because they were afraid that he would kind of automate them away, that they would lose their jobs to um, the other AI. So um, this is a, a very practical example of no matter how good of a data scientist you are, you will always have to work with people and have to work with customers. And um, there are some obstacles that you have to get around. What's, what's your opinion around domain knowledge? I mean, from your, from your internships, how, how helpful did you think domain knowledge is uh, to have data scientists who are really experts in a specific industry, not just in the model, let's say, not just experts in your networks, mm -hmm. but let's say experts in chatbots or in the automotive industry or in the manufacturing industry? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the only way to get some good domain knowledge is just you have to be insanely curious and also you have to talk a lot with your business or non-technical stakeholders whatever the person who's who have that, that knowledge right you have to like one of the parts you mentioned earlier is you have to to be uh, very um, customer centric right like you have to have that certain empathy that you that allow you to talk with those people and really understand their, their problem and that's the only way uh, to to become more knowledgeable about the domain you're working on over time you cannot just like come in the new industry and you kind of like apply the old way, maybe in your previous company at, at your new uh, new company, right? You have to like reinvent, you know, your your, your skill set a bit to fit with that new framework. And I think uh, back to your point about that whole uh, build, measure, learn uh, feedback loop, you can apply that same way, you know, how you, you want to like talk to many people, iterate your solution and come back and over time, as you get more substantial domain knowledge, you can come up with a, a good version of your product, right? Yeah, that's right. Being curious absolutely helps you adapt to any domain that you work in. Um, and the build measure learn loop, uh, you can MVP everything, that's right.
mm-hmm. given yeah. your learnings. Yeah. And and related to your your examples about you know talking talking with people, I think uh, like I, I think I mentioned earlier that um I was super into uh, behavioral psychology and and uh, behavioral, behavioral economics. So like I think that's that's really interesting because you when you you understand how people you know are predictably irrational, for example, and you you can like you know having uh, good you can design interesting experiment to make sure that your your product uh, or your AI technologies work as expected. So uh, that's another plus one of the race. Yeah. Awesome. So in a very informative postcode, uh, becoming a level three data scientist, you talk about the three different levels of data science job titles, as well as some of the best practices to get promoted to the next level. So uh, for you personally, what career level are you currently in? And what are some of the skill set that you're looking to improve upon? Oh man, yeah, great question. So, what skill set I am in? So, I'm mostly leading teams right now. So, I'm managing data science teams, data scientists themselves. So, I would kind of see myself outside of this ladder. Mm-hmm. I've exited this ladder. I think somewhere between level one and level two, right? Like after being a junior data scientist but not really quite being a senior data scientist and if i think back to my my days of still actively coding um i found myself that my statistical knowledge was solid that i could argue about models and argue which models would maybe uh, fit to certain use cases best but i would still have to learn a lot about actually operating um, machine learning models there were some projects that were deployed but creating this whole data DevOps and AI DevOps circle of constantly monitoring the performance of your deployed machine learning model and adding new data to your model and making sure that uh, the model improves over time with the virtuous cycle of AI. This is something I would definitely would have to um, improve my skills on. And then the business part, I feel like I was I was pretty good there, but you can't really skip any levels. You can't just jump from, let's say, one to three. I would still have to go through the course of um, making machine learning, um, really writing really production level code and making it highly reliable. So that would have been one of the skills that I would have to look at. But yeah, now I mostly care about um, making sure that the projects get delivered and mm-hmm. that we get the funding for next year, etc., etc. I see. So, so kind of reframe the question a bit. What could be your advice for data science uh, individual contributor who want to make a leap to a managerial? Okay, yeah, very good question. So, um, yeah, I think the most important point for any, let's say, team lead, data science team lead is uh, understanding the business, having the business knowledge. Now, this is easy for me to say, I'm obviously biased since I studied business, but ultimately when you think about it, every business has to make money and has to make more money and the more easy you can you can put this business mindset of creating value and actually also making money from the value that you're creating the easier it is to actually make your projects work and and get funding for your projects and the easier you make the life for the whole team so having solid business understanding is really important and then when you're leading teams and when you're managing teams you also have to be really good with understanding the team that you work with so i find one-on-ones to be invaluable when even one-on-ones when you don't just talk about um, work but even about stuff personal stuff and development stuff and you make sure that the team understands and you care about them about their performance and also about them individually 
And if you have those skills, the social skills and the business skills, I think it will make your life much easier in a managerial role. I see. I think you, earlier in our chat, you're talking about Andy Grove, right? Like to invent OKR framework. I think his book, uh, High Output Management, is also uh, pretty uh, popular, I'm sure. So would you recommend that book for people who want to become a good manager? I haven't read it. It's also still on my to-do list. Okay. I found a book when we go back to the 80s, mm -hmm. Managing Management Time from Onken. Um, my wife gave this book to me and at first I was pretty cautious because I wasn't sure how well a management book from the 80s was going to hold up in, uh, in a, let's say, agile software development cycle. But this book is so full of wisdom and has given me so many practical examples mm. to making the jump of, of a manager and how you have to shift your thinking from individual contributor to enabling others to do more. Um, that helped me really a lot, right? So... I was at, uh, we were actually in Silicon Valley the other day with a Volkswagen um, outlet for a, for a two-week trip and we didn't have enough developers for a certain task and I thought for a second about, hey, maybe I should just start to code again. I could jump back into the code and support the team with finishing this task. But then I thought back to myself, hey, it will take me a lot of time of actually setting up the ID, IDA again and and and, not, and and getting back into the development workflow that my time is not well used actually coding but to make life easier for the rest of the team and to help them let's say get the done the job done more efficiently so this thinking going back from individual contributor to enabling others to do their job more easily more efficiently this is the biggest mindset shift that you have to take i think i see so Less, less hands-on, right, and more big picture. Exactly, yeah. really enabling and just helping others to to be better at what they do. Uh, in one of your very recent pieces called uh, The Secrets to a Successful AI Strategy, you suggest that the AI strategy teams should consist of product managers, data scientists, and uh, business developers. So what would be your uh, advice for um, data scientists to collaborate productively with their counterparts in product and business functions? Yeah, the, the one thing I, I tell all incoming junior data scientists is the most important skill that you have is listening. So you have to go out and ask people this one simple question. This one question is, how can I help you? Okay, if you, if you go with this question to the product managers, to the business developers, and you listen to what they say, it's so much easier to, for you to understand and to figure out what they actually want and how you can help them and how AI can help them create a more successful, let's say, strategy that this is the, the, just the, the biggest, the best thing that you can do. Start with the question, how can I help you? And then just listen and listen and listen, understand what they want. And this way you just improve communication. Can you share your thoughts regarding the technology and uh, data community in Berlin? Yeah, so Berlin is actually really great. Some call it the Silicon Valley of Europe. I think London, by some measures, is a bigger startup hotspot um, than Berlin. But in a few other measures, I think Berlin is the most successful, most important um, startup hub in Europe, I would say. 
and the data community is also really great so there are lots of meetups there is this one incubator and investment company called project a they're a company builder and an investment fund and they host a lot of um building data driven um companies meetups there's a machine learning group meetup next week no in two weeks we're going to have the very first pi and ai data meetup so and i think the industries that are here in berlin there are not many industries as major players in berlin lots of companies have let's say out, outlets and labs in berlin but we have a very important um research institutions many actually with the tu berlin hu berlin and fu berlin and then we have the charité which is one of the um best hospitals let's say in europe and they're also very keen on making data driven decisions for in the healthcare industry so there's just so much going on so much cross fertilization so many different things and initiatives that is absolutely to be great in berlin at this time awesome would you say that uh, berlin is uh, is international enough like uh, oh yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. It's maybe even too international. I have a few friends who come from America and really other parts of the world, and they have trouble learning German because it's so easy to speak English everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. There are even some barber shops or some cafes where you can't speak German to the employees anymore, mm -hmm. um, where English is just default language. And I personally, I love it. I love it when the ecosystem is diverse. I think that's where the best ideas happen. I think that's um where the best startups are born and so i'm really happy to be here okay jen so at this point of a conversation we're going to move on to the closing segment in which i'm going to uh, ask you three rapid fire questions and you can give uh, tactical resources for the listeners who uh, want to seek them okay yeah um, for sure first one is what are some of the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you admire um, well, I would have to go with Google. I think most recently the Google and DeepMind and Google Brain research teams, uh, 170 papers were accepted at NeurIPS for 2019 or 2020. And I think if you have such a high output on research while also being a really uh, incredible company, incredibly profitable, that would have to be the number one. And one more thing that I would like to add for other companies that do not have access to so many resources and to so much money, like Google, like I think DeepMind, they lost half a billion or something, like 500 million last year, just in expenses. For other companies who don't have that much money to just um, spend on artificial intelligence, it's great that these big fang and bad companies, that they open source their models and open source their code, that we can use them for transfer learning purposes to build better models for our use cases. So tip my heads off to the big companies. The second question, well, we to already talk a lot about different books uh, throughout this uh, this conversation, so uh, I want to I want to reframe it a little bit. So, what is one movie or one podcast that you recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? Oh man, one podcast I can totally recommend is the one by DeepMind. It was curated by Hannah Fry, mm -hmm. and it's more like a limited series audiobook, and it talks about how DeepMind is looking at the pursuit of artificial general intelligence. And it's not necessarily too theoretically minded, so it's also easy for people who are not AI experts to get a hold of. Mm -hmm. But other podcasts that help you develop um, analytical mindset, um, there's a German one from Project A that I like a lot, but I think it's mostly for the German-speaking uh, ecosystem. It's called Bad Meetup. Mm -hmm. um, 
in English, I'm not too sure. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm uh, definitely going to try to listen to that. Leave my postcard, as you mentioned. I, uh, and, another, and another book I can recommend is Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Oh, Factfulness yeah, yeah. is also Factful. a book for data scientists. It's really good. One, it helps you to have a more positive um, perspective about how the world works and how we are developing at what amazing pace we're developing in the right direction. And on the other hand, it also reminds you of common pitfalls like don't be fooled by big numbers, always look into numbers in a relation, uh, don't think in analogies, don't argue in analogies, always ask for the data, where does the data come from. So Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Definitely good for developing an analytical mindset. I see. Yeah, yeah. I uh, definitely I, I agree. I, I read that book probably like a year ago, and like his his work, like uh, especially his TED talk, like really inspired me to kind of learn more about data vi visualization, right? And because like this is really really so powerful, amazing. so impactful. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And back to that podcast you mentioned uh, from Deepma, I actually read that book by Hannah Fry, uh, Hello World. Like a uh, couple great. months ago. Can you so, recommend it? Uh, mostly uh, talking about sort of the implication, the biases of the models. So if you're interested in more on, on the ethical side, um, yeah, a little more yeah. about AI ethics. That that, I think that's our focus, that's right, yeah. Yeah, a very uh, anthropology focus. Um, and the last question is that imagine that you send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I would ask all data scientists, why do you want to be a data scientist, okay? There are so many great positions in the data ecosystem, data engineers, data analysts, machine learning engineer. Like, why do you specifically want to be a data scientist? And if you can answer this, if you can answer this question, then you're on a very good way for selling yourselves in future jobs and also um, knowing how to develop your skills. And if you can't really answer this question, why you want to be a data scientist, maybe you find other ways of thinking about, hey, maybe I do want to be a data engineer, or maybe, hey, data analyst positions would also be cool. And that would help you then a lot develop your future skills. So really figuring out why you want to become a data scientist, uh, I think that could be key to your development. All right, John, uh, it's more than an hour, and uh, I really appreciate uh, you having us, this conversation with me for, for, for my podcast. I really enjoy learning about your ed educational background from uh, consulting, landing a job in, in, in data science, study computer science, your thoughts on uh, state-of-the-art self-driving car approach, the importance of learning business basics for data scientists, as well as uh, the AI project canvas. So uh, that's a lot of uh, nugget of wisdom I can share on my show notes with the people. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I hope people can learn a lot from our conversation. and. Uh, I also included some of the your contact information there. Just to make sure people interested can can reach out to you and learn more. And I'm uh, really looking forward to reading more of your meta articles. Awesome! Thank you so much for having me, James. It was a great conversation.
Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.